Hello and welcome back to another episode of Talking Terror. I'm John Morrison. Today's episode was recorded on the 16th of April 2019. What time is it now? It was meant to start at two, but our chat beforehand lasted a bit longer than we were anticipating, but we had a great chat. It's now 20 to 3 London time. As always, if you or anyone you are you know would be interested in doing an MSc in terrorism and counterterrorism studies, be sure to check out our masters here at Royal Holloway University of London, being offered in September, October 2019. Go to the link in the description uh, of this podcast and you can um, you can get on board in a really interesting masters, although I would say it's really interesting seeing as I'm teaching on it. But also thank you to our sponsors, IB Taurus, and they are generously giving all of you a 35% discount on all books from the Middle East and politics section from bloomsbury.com. Just use the offer code TALKINGIBT19 in when you go to check out, put that in the discount code uh, section. So that's talking IBT, all capitals, all one word with the number 1919 after it. Um, and if you are interested in, un, in following what's going on when this podcast, be sure to follow us on Twitter at terror underscore podcast and follow me at Morrison underscore JF. Anyway, on with today's podcast. It's my great pleasure to be joined on the podcast by Dr. Raquel De Silva from the International Development Department at Birmingham University. Raquel is a British Academy Research Fellow at, uh, at Birmingham University and has carried out some really interesting uh, research looking at the role of narrative within political violence. So Raquel, thank you so much for being on today's podcast. Thank you for inviting me. So how did you first become involved in this area of research what what drew you uh, to this okay so this was a few years ago uh, i was doing my masters uh, in portugal in justice psychology um, and i was just thinking about a dissertation subject a master's dissertation subject um, and at the time i had a wonderful professor um, her name was carla machado and uh, in one of her courses on the socio-political determinants uh, of committing crime, Uh, one of the lectures was on terrorism. Uh, And at the end, you know, really interesting, she was an amazing teacher, and at the end she just said, but you know what, the sad thing is that we've had quite a lot of political violence in Portugal, and nobody has really studied it. That's really stuck with me and uh, I went up to her and I said oh you know I would love to do that and she was great (laughs) but she said okay uh, do you have any access no okay then so go and see if you can get access to the people who've done political violence in Portugal in the past and then you know come talk to me well, this wasn't an easy thing because I did not know anyone. Um, but this really kind of um, sent me into a quest to find someone who could talk to me and to do this research. Um, and yes, I did. So, and uh, Carla Machado was my master supervisor at the time. I contact, I was able to access eight people from four different organizations who committed political violence in the past in Portugal. This was amazing. This was 
really exciting and encouraged me to do more because obviously this was just a master's dissertation. Um, the sad thing was that uh, Carla Machado had been battling with cancer for a few years and um, a few months after I defended my dissertation, she passed away. Um, so, as, so we had plans for the PhD uh, and all that, which were kind of, you know, shaken by that. Um, but that was also the way I came to the UK. So she left me um, some contacts. We were doing work with people in the UK um, who I then contacted and just kind of, you know, were like, sure, you know, you're... Um, and that's how I came here to continue studying uh, political violence uh, in the Portuguese case. And it's such a difficult time for obviously her family, but also for you as, as one, of her, one of her students and someone who has clearly been influenced quite strongly by her. And that advice that she gave you, that that point that she raised about the political violence in Portugal, this isn't something that we hear about too much. We don't really, we hear about political violence in so many countries, but a lot of our listeners will be thinking, what political violence in Portugal? So what what was she referring to there? Yes, so, and what is really interesting, John, is that it's not even in the UK or at the international level that we don't know about political violence in Portugal, but also in Portugal, if you go nowadays into a master's course or, you know, in talking to people of, you know, younger generations, even my own generation, uh, so people in their early 30s, people actually cannot name a violent organization, a Portuguese violent organization. And I've tried this, right? And they can't. Um, and actually, I have a paper <laughs> why that is or why I think that is. Um, but, um, but so, and when I start my presentations here, I always have this little chart showing people how political violence happened in Portugal and what was the context. So really quickly, um, so I'm talking about political violence from non-state groups in the 20th century. And uh, the most important date to contextualize this is 1926, when uh, a dictatorial regime started in Portugal. This was Estado Novo's regime, and the first dictator was Antonio de Oliveira Salazar. So this can also be known as Salazarismo. Um, so during the period of, Salazari, of Salazar's regime, that only ended in 1974, so 1976 until 1974 of a dictatorial regime, we had three armed organizations. These were left-wing organizations um, who were trying to overthrow the regime, okay? And most of these militants are still alive. Okay, and also what really drew me into this was that they are still alive, but they are quite old, right? They were fighting in the 60s uh, as young people then. Um, so then uh, there was a revolution on the 25th of April, 1974. It's coming up, the day of the revolution. Um, and um, they didn't do it. It was the military. It was a military coup, but they believed that they contribute to the awareness of the people, right? So then we have the, the revolution and there's two right-wing organizations who kind of try a counter-revolution because obviously they weren't, they weren't happy about the revolution that they saw as a leftist revolution and that was opening the door to communism in Portugal. So these are non-state right-wing organizations? Yes. But they were former military men, 
of the deposed regime. Okay. Most of them, okay? Or ma mainly people from the north, Catholic landowners were really afraid of communism again. This is 76, also the kind of the Cold War context. You know, let's never decontextualize how politics was happening in the world. Um, these two organizations uh, have a very short um, lifespan, around two years. Then there were some uh, groups that continued after the official end, as always. But uh, by the 80s, they were gone, okay, the right-wing organizations. But then in the 80s, we have the final organization, which are the FP25. Uh, popular forces of the 25th of April, so again a left-wing organization, who was really frustrated, so the militants were really frustrated with the loss of the promises of the revolution, because they did believe that Portugal was going to be a socialist country after the revolution, that did not happen, okay, like the... There was a period of transition to democracy that looked like it, but that was crashed in the 25th of November 1975. And just, you know, a normal democratic uh, process kind of took place, the multiple parties that we didn't have during the regime. But so they were really frustrated and they tried as a vanguard, as a Leninist, Marxist-Leninist organization they try to defend the workers and through the revolution of the proletariat to achieve, you know, to reach power. And they were the most violent organization in the sense that they openly, strategically killed people. So the other organizations did not. Actually, the first left-wing organizations were against killing people. Uh, the right-wing ones, they say they were against, but people died, but it's not clear, and let's not go into that, or we can later on. But then this one, there was an open strategy, okay, of killing employers or the symbols of the uh, exploitative employers. So by how many people died? 20. Okay. Uh, in around seven years. So they started in 1980, and... Uh, the last arrests were made in, at the end of the 80s, maybe a few at the beginning of the 90s. Um, yeah. So we've got this history of political violence, non-state political violence in Portugal. But you say that the majority of people within Portugal don't know about it, aren't aware of it, or at least potentially aren't admitting to it. Why is this? I believe because <laughs> it is due to uh, revisionist political narratives. And that's where my paper on the post-dictatorship memory politics in Portugal comes from, okay? So I believe that uh, these, there, were, there, there was a collective memory that was built after the dictatorship by the people in power, by this um, reconciliation narrative that included some actors, but not others, to, um, that erased the political violence from the collective memory. And actually, John, I do believe that when you go like talk to people in their 20s now, uh, and, well, and above, uh, below that for sure, that they actually do not know. This is not talked about. So we only now, so in this paper, what I do with my co-author, Anna Sophia Ferreira, is that we map 
the existing publications on violent organizations in Portugal. Very few, in these three periods of time that I told you about, okay? So I consider them pre-revolution, counter-revolution, post-revolution. Um, we map the existence of the literature, or the lack of it, and one of, the th one of the things we find out is that the memoirs of the people, which is something that is quite um, normal to they exist a lot in other contexts. They only started coming out in the late 90s, beginning of the 2000s. So people who fought in the 60s, in the 70s, in the 80s, they actually were silent for a very long period of time. Uh, and only now, and Manuel Lof, who's a researcher um, based in Porto, is saying now that in the 90s, there was this rebellion of memory. Okay. That people kind of said, you know, actually there was this revisionism by the right-wing governments that were in power from mid-70s to mid-90s that uh, they did not like the revolution, they were against it, they thought it was the, it, as a consequence we had all the financial troubles in Portugal, so it was some, and actually the regime hadn't been that bad, mm -hmm. you know, it wasn't fascist, you know, there was all this kind of revisionism of the political narrative that led to kind of, you know, burying the, the violence that had been, because you know, the violence was in a context of a dictatorship that had a political police that tortured people, that killed people, you know, anyone that was seen as a, an opponent would be arrested, you know, it was a, a pretty violent regime. It's not Nazis, mm. you know, in Germany or Mussolini in Italy or, but still, right? We can't just discount because it wasn't that bad. And for these, for these individuals themselves, because you said a lot of these individuals are still alive, mm -hmm. had they attempted to be telling their stories before or were they, were they trying to, to just move away from that completely? So it's different for each of the three periods because um, there are very different contextual constraints. Uh, for most of the militants who fought during the dictatorship, when the revolution happened, they just wanted to go back to their lives. They had been living underground for years and their clandestine identity. They had family and friends they hadn't seen for a very long time. And their goal had been achieved. And as you know, this is one of the reasons that the terrorism literature actually gives us for why militants disengage or why organizations end. Um, then, uh, right after the revolution, there were quite a few transitional justice type processes in Portugal. So this kind of included forced exile of part of the political elite from the regime, um, trials of people involved in the main repressive institutions like the political police, vetting of members of the public and private sectors, amnesty for the political uh, prisoners. Um, there was even an investigation commission and the uh, mechanisms to compensate um, the regime's victims, for example. But, uh, well, I guess that, as in other contexts, the stories of the politically violent militants were not included um, in this kind of transitional justice processes. Actually, I just read a really interesting book called Created Stories, the Uses and Misuses of Storytelling by the author is um, Sujata Fernandes. Um, and she touches exactly on this point. She gives the example of various truth and reconciliation commissions around the world that avoid the stories of people who took up 
up arms against the system. So they tend just to want to focus on the stories of the good victims with whom the public can easily empathize and there is no effort to understand questions of structural power or personal accounts of why political violence happen. So, so this all really um, quickly changed. Uh, the period of transition was replaced by a period of consolidated democracy. So these transitional justice processes uh, happen during this period of transition right after um, the revolution. Uh, but then with the period of consolidated um, democracy, where, as I said, parties leaning to the right took control, which clearly devaluated the memory of resistance to the dictatorship. And also, they actually demonized the transition period. Um, so by the end of the 1980s, the Portuguese government adopted a totalitarian reading of the April Revolution, arguing that the leftist forces aimed to replace Estado Novo's regime by a kind of a communist Marxist dictatorship, which created the negative memory of such an important date in Portuguese history and blocked any debate around revolutionary violence. So at the same time, this also kind of legitimized the violence carried out by the extreme right. Um, and these organizations, they act during the transition period. So you had organizations like the ELP, uh, the MDLP and the Maria de Font plan. So three main uh, right-wing organizations who committed violence during the, the, the transition period. And these were never uh, brought to justice. Um, they simply stopped their activities and the ones based in Portugal continued, you know, the militants based in Portugal continued with their lives and the ones in exile, um, they came back. Some of them said, you know, they waited a bit to see how things were going, but then they came back with no judicial consequences. Um, actually, I just had a, a chapter sent to an, an edited collection about the extreme right um, edited by Tor Biergo, where with my colleague Ricardo Marchi, we, we just cover um, all this um, history and, and stories um, of militants. So that will come out, I guess, by the end of this year. Um, uh, and then also in this scenario, it is really quite clear um, why the militants themselves never, never felt too inclined to talk, right? Because, you know, in this extends to the present, there are only two books written by extreme right militants. One was published right in 1976 by Commander Alpuin Calvão. He was one of the operational leaders of one of the organizations called MDLP. Um, and in this book, he explains his trajectory from a military career uh, fighting in the colonial war to the ranks of the MDLP in Spain, uh, where he was exiled. Um, and then a few years ago, a team of authors wrote his biography. And that's it. This is the literature you have um, as in the kind of memoir style. Um, and then for the last organization, the FP25, who fought in the 80s, the story is again different. So again, another context and another contextual constraints. Um, they were all brought to justice, you know, big difference from the extreme right organizations. Uh, and the majority of these militants spent time in jail. Um, and actually, there is a sense of frustration in this appointment. So um, no much 
ground to create memoirs and to talk about the past there, really. Um, however, there are, there's a couple of books written by former militants and their pseudonyms, and then also a couple of books where former militants collaborated with an author being it there's one with a um, police officer and there's maybe a couple with journalists um but then it's from the 1990s onwards that there there has been this period that Manuel Love, a Portuguese uh, research based in Porto called rebellion of memory um, so basically, this is a reaction to the 20 years of quite aggressive historical revisionism, which devalued the memory of the anti-fascist resistance, particularly regarding the armed organizations. Um, so contextually, it coincided with the beginning of a new political cycle marked by the coming to power of the Socialist Party. So for the first time uh, on its 25th anniversary, the April Revolution was celebrated with enthusiasm by the political establishment. Uh, at this point, a stimulus was provided for the publication of autobiographical accounts and memoirs by some of the protagonists of the resistance to the dictatorship. And in their old age, um, some of them really became aware of the need to fix the autobiographical narrative uh, since they saw themselves confronted with the proliferation of revisionist discourses, um, which tended to deny um, the repressive past. So with this context in mind that you're doing a master's and going on to do a phd you've got this awareness now this history of political violence this untold history of mm. political violence really within portugal how did you go about researching this then because i think when we when we're looking at your research here while the Portuguese examples are really interesting, and it's something that we don't really read about at all, what is at times even more interesting is the way that you approach it, is the, the, the utility of, of narratives, the analysing narratives. So how did you go and approach this? What, what did you want to achieve with your research? So in narrative analysis, I really found the ideal way of dealing with the huge amount of data I was collecting, okay? So this was not from the beginning. In my master's, I just did a very kind of simple thematic analysis. And when I started the PhD, I, I think at the beginning I was kind of just doing the same because everyone was really excited by the context, by the new kind of case study, first time ever written in English, um, even in for Portuguese literature is, is very innovative. But I was not comfortable because I didn't think that a simple thematic analysis and here I'm not, you know, saying that thematic analysis is wrong or anything, but I just felt that that wasn't enough. That wasn't doing the data uh, justice and wasn't really, you know, like getting to the point I wanted to get. So um, I come across the... Uh, Center for Narrative Research at University of East London. So amazing people who are there, like uh, Molly Andrews, Corinne Squire, Sish uh, Dem Ezin, you know, all that crew. And I really, I start reading a lot of Molly Andrews' work on narratives and political narratives. And 
I got really excited, you know, I just, you know, reading her work, her work was really key for me to decide I actually want to do this because here is where you really have people's stories in a context, in a temporal context, in a spatial context, and you can make sense of what is going around them and how they're making sense of it and how are they acting it in their lives uh, and then how they are um, reflecting on it and performing it in the present right how the past is performed in the present and uh, also influenced by an imagined future to me this was really eye-opening it was really you know a, a kind of an innovative moment in my research so i just went up to my supervisor and said Oh, yeah, not doing thematic analysis anymore. I'm going to do narrative analysis, which made them uncomfortable. <laughs> but, um, but they got it that, you know, this really needed a more in-depth type of methodology. Um, and from then, uh, I kind of tried to develop my approach because the, the thing is, and I think that's why this makes various people uncomfortable to use narrative analysis and maybe also why narrative analysis is not always really um, used to its full potentiality is because it seems when you get to it, each person does it, it her, her own way, right? It's like so many ways, so many theories and people feel very kind of overwhelmed. Um, so I think part of my um, aim in, on what, in what I write is to be very clear on how I do narrative analysis because I did struggle with it, right? The first time doing it, I did struggle. So I kind of took it very personally to do it, you know, do the best I can with the data, but then also be very clear on how I'm using narrative inquiry. And uh, so this really... Uh, encouraged me with my colleague jo Josephine Graf and Nick Lemay-Hebert to put together this special issue uh, that was published by Studies in Conflict and Terrorism where uh, we wanted to explore narrative as a lens to view the social world, as data that provide insights into the social world, and as a tool for analyzing the data in a systematic and coherent manner, but also as a meaningful ethical practice of doing research. And for me, this is what narrative inquiry is. You know, it's not just I'm collecting stories here or, you know, I'm just um, looking at people's narratives, which a lot of people seem to say and write in their papers. But then when you look deeper, um, they kind of just do part of it. Mm -hmm. For example, they use narratives as a lens to the social world, but they don't really use it as a tool for analyzing. Then they do discourse analysis mm -hmm. or critical discourse analysis, okay? So what I try to do is to develop the approach in its full potentiality. Um, and so this was our, our goal um, with the special issue and in the introduction, we, we really... 
um, develop this, uh, all these areas. Um, because, and then in the other publications um, I've done and I'm working on, I've been really experimenting with different types of narrative inquiry. Because it's true, you have different ways of doing it, you have uh, different theories you can use to influence how you analyze your data. And, uh, and I think it's, re it's really rich if you try to. So, one of the ways I've been experimenting with is with the dialogical uh, narrative analysis right so um yeah again there's so many ways and so I, when i discovered the the dialogical self theory and um, i was totally in love you know again for me it was a moment of oh why didn't i come across this earlier i discovered it after my phd so then from the thesis to the book i changed it all right <laughs> So I kind of, well, not changed it all because the narrative approach, you know, the having the narrative accounts, having the self as a multivocal uh, entity, you know, is all the same. And just the, so what the dialogical self theory brought to my research is a more in-depth analysis of the data. It's a different framework because, so in the PhD, I create this or I worked with this framework of engagement with, life within, disengagement from an armed organization. And I looked at the identity transformation, but then in the book, I bring that out much more clearer. So, um, so the book was edited by um, the Routledge Critical Terrorism Studies. And when I was talking to Richard Jackson, the series editor, about the possibility of having a book, uh, he was great and he gave me great advice. He actually said, yes, I would be interested, but could you go further than your thesis? You know, could you do something else? And actually the dialogical uh, self theory for me was that way of going deeper in the analysis. I think, um, so this new framework that I call uh, dialogical narrative um, identity analysis framework is much more focused on identity. And that's exactly one of the areas where I think that the narrative inquiry can really shed light on. Uh, because areas like um, identity, emotion, culture, I think the analysis of narratives and people's stories can really bring a lot to that, you know, a lot of detail, the thick descriptions that the critical terrorism scholars started saying that we need more uh, because we need more to understand the phenomenon, right? Um, so that's basically what, uh, yeah, what I'm doing um, in the book with the dialogical uh, framework. And could you talk about dialogical analysis to change process, the change process from engagement to disengagement. Yeah. What have you found through your research um, about this process? So um, in the book and then in uh, a couple of other publications that came out afterwards, I'm really concerned with this change process, right? I want to understand how people's identity change. And this comes from my data. This comes from analyzing former militants' life stories where 
you can see this change, right? You can see, because when you start talking to people, they start telling their stories from the moment they're born. Even if you don't really ask, but you know, they, they need to contextualize it for you, right? They, they, I, I'm sure they feel, you know, I need to give the full story. So here it, here it goes, you know, it starts, and Molly Anders called this, you know, people work with the, the stories they inherit, and they do, right? So, um, so then they walk you through all these phases of their lives before being a militant. And then you see, you start seeing this moment where what I call the I as a militant position starts forming. And this can form in, in very different ways for very different people. What I can tell you is that this is really close to the context the people are living, right? The spatial, the temporal context in which they're living. And they use it. They use the political happenings of their day to uh, inform their political awareness, as I call it in the book. I guess nowadays we would call it radicalization, uh, <laughs> but not my interviewees <laughs> so but they talk a lot about being political aware gaining political awareness that contribute to this creation of the i as a militant position so in my work this i as a militant is a key position because this leads you to do something about it in other words to engage with the political violent organization and then the first period of engagement or life within, as I call them, you see the strengthening of this positioning and you see other positions that in in the dialogical self theory, you'd say that they are um, working centripetal ways. So there's other positions that come up that are reinforcing the I as a militant. And the work of Donatella della Porta, she doesn't use dialogical self theory, but she used the cognitive and uh, affiliative closure. And this is very, very similar because it's exactly everything you do is justifying your I as a militant position, right? Your identity position as a militant um, in terms of your cognitions, you know, the way you see the world, but also in terms of your affections and your emo emotional bonds with the people around you, your comrades, right? Um, so you see in my work this really, really, you know, centripetal movement, everything kind of moving around this I as a militant. And we also treat this as a form of monologue because there's only one uh, narrative, let's call it, account that you're giving supremacy to. So all the others that would kind of challenge the I as a militant are put in the background. You know, they are not important now. The most important thing now is the I as a militant and everything that contributes to this. However, we call it like, you know, the second or third periods of this life within moment, you know, when disappointments start happening. And this can be disappointments with the structure, the organization, the way the leaders are conducting it, the way the actions are turning out, the death of comrades. You know, all these organizations saw comrades' death, either uh, building a bomb or in confrontations with the police. And um, all these things becoming apparent, you know, women getting pregnant, men becoming fathers, all these things. And this is terrorism research, you know, we know these things, but you see through this way of looking through narrative as lenses, you see how this is influenced identity and how is it, you know, the I as a militant starts being shaken by these other positions, okay? Um, and 
to a point where actually change starts happening again, but in the other direction. You know, this just doesn't make as much sense as before. And here, even if you're still engaged, and in my work, you know, well, I'm lucky because, you know, I just talk to people at length about the way they see things. You know, one of them, Julia, we have a paper on her in the special issue. You know, she says, you can't go back, even if you want to. You know, you can't simply disengage from a violent organization that has been, you know, placing bombs, killing people, and go back home. You can't do that. So either you continue, or you go into exile in another country and you never ever come back to this country, you're arrested or you die. These are the options. So based, and, and this contributes to keeping up the, the I as a militant identity position, right? But also, it starts challenging it you know this starts being very heavy for people and they do make other decisions julia for example she decided to stop committing actions until the point where she was just arrested she was waiting for it she says you know i was just waiting i didn't want to go away i was just waiting to be arrested you know and kind of disengaged through being arrested and like her you find a lot of people and then in prison um Neil Ferguson covers this a lot about people, you know, the experience of prison and how people uh, reflect on their actions and make different uh, choices. But this is where, but, and this is what I keep saying now. <laughs> it's like, this is not automatic, right? This is not, um, I as a militant, and this is where I'm really interested, you know, how do you go from I as a militant to I as a former militant. And this is what I try to cover a lot uh, in the book. You know, what are the other identity positions or I positions, as the dialogical self-theory puts it, that contribute to not a centripetal movement anymore, but a centrifugal movement. So distancing themselves from the I as a militant and moving towards I as a former militant. Because in my opinion, and from the interviews I've done, this never goes away, right? So there is no I as a militant and then nothing. That's why I believe that I as a former militant and loads of things they tell you nowadays about how their lives is organized. Some people more than others, but um, some people is really clearly that they have this very, very strong I as a former militant position. You know, we have Jaime that says, the past guides my present and my future. What I did in the past, you know, I keep thinking about it and uh, re I remember it a lot. I talk about it a lot because this is like a, a guide for me in the present. You have other people say, actually, I put the past in a drawer and I never talk about it. Uh, but then if you ask them, their identity positions kind of relate to the I as a militant, you know, because so important in someone's life you know it's 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 a really key experience um but then what i'm trying to identify is these other positions that made people come away like i as a mother so the family ones are really important and again this uh, is very in tune with the rest of the literature uh, but we always need to be careful because it's not for everyone and this is a very important thing that I can't underline enough that there isn't a one size fits all. So all my research, you know, I've, I map these positions. I, in, for, I can't even find patterns for different people, but we can never use this as a one size fits all. We can never say, oh, well, Raquel says that when people get pregnant, there you go, is the end of their engagement. No, 
we know that and, and for some people and again I have other people in my research so I have this woman that she said um, when she got pregnant she kind of uh, decided but she had been pregnant before and she had gone through abortions mm -hmm. so you know so it's not about the getting pregnant it's about the moment in what it happens the context you know it was after she has been six years uh, in hiding and their clandestine identity she was tired you know the organization was falling apart so you know it's not just about that it's all the context that we all <laughs> need to look at right um, but this is the strength for me of the of the dialogical narrative analysis where you look at the dialogue between the positions you look at the dialogue between I as a mother and I as a militant in that specific period of time right and so when we're looking at disengagement you're talking about a dialogue there but as you said if we're talking about radicalization and i'm the same as you i don't like the the term but we're burdened with it in a way yeah. but you're talking about a monologue here and oftentimes this happens at adolescence what role does what could this approach tell us about why this is often happening at that point in a person's life Okay, so here is where my research takes a lot from life, score, life Course Scholarship. And I use particularly the work of Bertram Kohler and Jürgen Habermas, which considers that acquisition of a coherent life story narrative starts to be possible in adolescence. So in developmental terms, it is only at this point in life that individuals are able to give both internal and external context to their life stories and to integrate their memories in, into a coherent overall narrative. So it is only in adolescence that individuals are able to start conceiving and talking about themselves and about others in a biographical way. They also start recognizing the temporal linearity of their stories and how stories connect and offer explanations for different life events. Um, and also how their context, and this can be social, cultural, historical, religious, um, surround and influence their lives. So it is at this stage in adolescence that individuals start building their narrative identity or their story of the self. Um, and here the work of Dan McAdams is really key to understand how this narrative identity develops. Uh, and this is very clear in my research. Um, quite a few people talked about growing up with certain stories. Um, you have Mariana, for example, um, she was part of the FP25. And she says that she grew up listening to tales of a Republican grandfather who kept being arrested by Salazar regime. Uh, her mother used to tell her these stories to discourage her from ever getting involved um, in politics, but it actually had the opposite effect. Um, so for Mariana, there was this external position, my Republican grandfather. So it's, it's an external position because it's about someone else from the outside. So the stories of her Republican grandfather. Um, and this was essential in the development of uh, Mariana's political awareness. Um, but obviously, this external position did not exist in a vacuum in, Mariana, in Mariana's, Mariana's self-system. But it formed a coalition um, of promoter positions with the internal positions. I as someone who has been ready for the armed struggle from birth and I as someone responds naturally 
to social injustices. So here is where you start seeing the dialogue between different positions in the pre-engagement phase that starts strengthening a monological self revolving around I as a militant position. So both the external position, my Republican grandfather, and the other internal positions of Mariana seeing herself ready for the armed struggle from birth as someone responds naturally to social injustices, this really started creating this monologue that led Mariana to engage in a violent organization and to give dominance to this um, position, I as a, I as a militant. Um, I have a paper on Mariana's life story that is about to be published in a special issue on radicalization and the dialogical self um, in the Journal of Constructivist Psychology. So um, there people will be able to read um, the whole story um, of, uh, of Mariana's uh, life and this, all these positions, pro-engagement and then um, pro-disengagement too. It's a really fascinating approach. It's a really interesting way of looking at it because it's quite different to the way a lot of others would look at it when we're looking at process of engagement and disengagement. But even though it's different, I'm sure people listening in who have done research in this area can hear through through the way you're talking about it and through uh, your research, you can they can see, yeah, that does actually fit with, with what I've found. It does fit. And within it, you talk about the roles of dominance reversal and the role of negotiations as being potentially the beginning of change for individuals uh, within these roles, so mm-hmm. for these militants. What do you mean by this and what roles do these play? So these are two ways uh, in which, in the dialogical self-theory, we found that people change, right? So the dominance reversal would is, is a way, but is not the preferred way, because you're just replacing a dominant position by another dominant position. So you're still in monologue, right? You're still... Um, so one example in my research is this person who, had, who was a student, uh, and during, so this was one of the organizations during the dictatorial regime, and he was really keen on his studies. He was studying to be an engineer. He was, he had a girlfriend. So when he says that, you know, when the Portuguese Communist Party approached me to go into hiding to start uh, the ARA, I said no. I'm a student. I have a girlfriend. I have a smiley life in front of me. So, you know, the high is a student for him. And, you know, throughout the interview, he came back to it various times because, but then this was his kind of, you know, main dominant position at the time. Uh, but he started thinking, other events started happening, you know, more uh, oppression, more. And he kind of felt that after two years of the first invitation, he was invited again to lead this or start this organization. And then he kind of measured it and he thought, so he, he reversed the dominance. He chose the I as a militant, so he was by then convinced that this organization and that violent actions were needed. Um, but there wasn't really a negotiation between the I as a student and the I as a militant. He couldn't do both because he had to be clandestine, he had to disappear, basically, cut ties with everyone. So. So there's just a change in, you know, there's just, before it was I as a student at the dominant position, now is I as a militant. Why isn't this a preferred way? Because nowadays he's in his 70s and he's still um, 
sad that he didn't finish his degree. So nowadays you talk to him and he still says, you know, I don't regret having done it, but it's a shame that I never finished my degree. Okay? Yeah. So you see why dominance reversal is not ideal. It's because it's not um, a kind of, people don't get to a, like a peace mm-hmm. kind of place where, where they feel at peace with their decisions. They just reverse the dominance and it was still monologue, right? There wasn't this democratic self that is the balanced ideal self. Negotiation is different. Negotiation, you have this kind of... Negotiation usually implies a metaposition. And this is really key in the dialogical self-theory. Metaposition emerged, hopefully, when you have two conflicting positions. For example, this would be uh, I as a student and I as a militant. Uh, but I have another good example, which was between I as a father and I as a militant. Because let's not say that just that you become a father and disengage, but actually in this case, so he had two children. This was also a pre-revolution militant. And, um, but he felt that he had to do something. And when he tells me the story, he says, you know what, the big story is, it's because I had two children that I did what I've done because if everyone would only think of their own two children and not of everybody's children we would never do anything so it's because of my children and of everybody's children that I'm engaging and doing something with a violent organization so here he had two conflicting positions I as a father and I as a militant, and he found a metaposition that bridged the conflict. So metapositions are like, um, they call them bird view positions or helicopter positions where you're almost able to kind of um, go out of yourself, look at yourself from uh, another viewpoint, see what's happening and finding a bridge between the conflict, the conflicting positions. So for him was this justification of fighting for everybody's kids, a better future without the dictatorship for everybody's kids. So I, as a fighter for social justice or for everyone. So this, this meta position really bridged and solved the conflict, negotiated, if you want, the conflict between I, as a father, was going to leave the children behind for how many years? You don't know, even possibly die. You know, he kind of presented all these scenarios he was dealing with at the time. And I, as a militant. Um, And then, you know, nowadays you don't see him um, kind of fighting with that or regretful or because he believes in his metaposition, right? That solved the conflict. So he's still you know, sure of what is... So it's much more beneficial for him to have gone through that negotiation rather than that dominance reversal then as well. Exactly. And you talked at the beginning when when we introduced this about the ethical role Mm. of utilizing this approach. Could you go, could you tell our listeners why that's important as well? So when we collect and work with personal narrative accounts, we take on a particular responsibility as we simultaneously listen to, evaluate and tell stories, um, thereby acting, not always knowingly, as intermediaries between our interviewees and an audience that at the time of the interview is an imagined audience influenced by 
who the researcher is perceived to be, but who then become a real audience when the results are published. Um, and here we enter a really, really complex network of power relations that can create unintended consequences for interviewees. So in my opinion, it is the responsibility of the researcher to reflect about this and to share it with the interviewees too. One way of doing this is not limiting ethical concerns to certain parts of the research, um, but weaving them throughout the whole process and keeping the communication channel open with interviewees, if possible, obviously, and, and if they want, because yeah, they don't always want, you know, sometimes they just want to give you the interview and, and that's it. Um, so personally, I have different moments of, for instance, requesting consent from my interviewees to use their words and experiences. So I always do this, obviously, before interviewing them, um, but I also do it after the transcription of the interview. So I send the transcript to them and I ask uh, to correct any inaccuracies um, and to give me consent to use um, any words on it. Uh, and in some cases, and here it really depends on the language skills of the, t the interviewees, because with my work in Portugal, I did, you know, I conducted all the field work in Portuguese, but then all my publications are in English, right? Um, so, but if possible, if they can read English, uh, sometimes before I publish the data, I also run it through them just to make sure um, they are, you know, they are comfortable what I'm with the words I'm using from their transcripts. Uh, and in this process, I also clarify, uh, which is really important, that their stories will be treated as possible versions of the social world, so that they will not feel betrayed or expect me to affirm or endorse their version um, of events. Um, this has obviously created really interesting conversations, as you may imagine. Um, but um, yeah, that would give another research project on itself, really. Um, another ethical area that tends to be related to narrative analysis um, is that of empowerment. So Kunkun Bavnani says that the assumption that empowerment is synonymous with giving a voice is not a valid one um, because bringing silenced voices forward can also be disempowering um, because we can also be reproducing um, social stereotypes, for example. Um, so at the beginning of, the of my research with the Portuguese um, former militants, I really thought I was giving them a voice. Uh, but then throughout the process, um, yeah, my opinion really changed about this and I started reflecting more and more if I was really giving them a voice or, you know, was I empowering them or, or not really. Um, and, and, here, and also what made me think of this is, is the one example from one of my interviewees. Um, she, was, she was in her 80s already when I interviewed her and she didn't really want to be interviewed. So she was very resistant. She had, because she had given an interview a while before, which had been portrayed in a book uh, previously published that caused their 11-year-old grandchild to ask her whether in the past she had been like those people who throw planes at skys skyscrapers. So, although our organization rejected harming human lives, this was a particularly difficult and disturbing question because she did not know how to explain to a such, such a young person um, what she has done. So, she told her grandchild that they would return to the subject when he grew older. Uh, so this lady felt anything but empowered, really, um, through the, the telling of her story. 
So a narrative researcher has to reflect on who is it that the research process is empowering. We also need to be very attentive to the absence of stories. Any narrative analysis needs to take into consideration who gets to talk to whom and about what, under what circumstances, and with what consequences for storytellers, audiences, and, and even their communities. Here, there's another really interesting um, chapter by Paul Greedy. Um, he's part of the, narr- of the edited collection doing narrative research. Um, it's, it's really interesting and it really touches um, these issues. Same for Elizabeth Dauphiné uh, in her paper published by Peace Building in 2015, I guess, um, that also says that the dead cannot tell their stories. So we are limited to the stories we hear and many stories remain untold because their narrators have been silenced through you know, trauma, but also through oppression. We as a society do not like to hear the stories of people who have committed acts of violence, um, even if such stories are pervaded by structural violence, um, but we still you know, choose um, to bury them. Um, yeah, the final thing is that in the process of doing narrative analysis ethically, I believe that the researchers has to constantly reflect or earn our own positioning. Stories are co-created during the interview process, and this co-creation contributes to how stories are analyzed. When I was collecting the stories of the former militants in Portugal, at first I felt antagonistic regarding specific stories and passionate about others. And this is what stories have the power to do. Stories act in people's lives and set courses of action. Um, I did not see this at first. I actually needed some critical friends to help me see it. So when I became aware of my ethnographic seduction, um, I started examining my own life story for possible inhibitions, weaknesses, uh, biases, and obviously I found them. Uh, For instance, I'm entirely supportive of the April Revolution. I grew up celebrating it, even if I was born more than 10 years after it. Um, So it was to be expected that my favorite stories would not be about countering the revolution. So I had to be rigorous in distinguishing empathy and seduction in order to retain the same level of interest and understanding regarding all stories, because all of them are equally valuable valuable to understand political violence in Portugal. Uh, So the analysis of of stories made me grapple with the stances of objectivity, neutrality and detachment so often reified by academic conventions. All stories, and particularly life stories, carry emotions and cause emotional responses in the listener. We are not called art scientists that simply collect stories and write about them. I learned that the emotions triggered at different stages of my research process were actually valuable At times they helped me empathizing with life experience I have never had. Um, And other times they forced me to stop and retune my conceptions, not only to avoid favorites, but also to deal with with really difficult stories. And by having an approach like that, it allows your readers to get a really important insight into how you've been carrying it out. What were that that role of context uh, the broad political context as well as the the individual context as well but it also creates opportunities for you um to become rightfully so more trusted by your interviewees as well and it's as you said it's not you're not a cold hard scientist going in collecting the data and leaving it, it these are human personal relationships um that you're uh, that you're building up there as well, and yeah. that 
benefits you as a researcher then as well as a result of this. There will be some of our listeners who will be listening into this and going, okay, this is all really interesting, but is this purely academic? Is this just to give us this academic insight, but can it be applied outside of academia? How would you respond to that? So I believe it can. So I really uh, um, agree and try to leave the kind of critical terrorism scholars uh, maximum of research should contribute uh, to a better world, Mm -hmm. should contribute to social change, right? So, um, and I think through life stories research, uh, we can do that, particularly when we're talking about perpetrators of political violence. Um, Because, and this is something, you know, I keep kind of (laughs) struggling with in my um, current research, because we love stories of victims. We, as human beings, okay? You know, they bring it home. You know, we feel for them. And that's fine. I'm not against that. And, you know, victims research and life stories of victims and all that, you know, it has a really important place in terrorism studies and other area studies, for sure. Um, But we also need the other side. Okay? We also need to understand the people who commit themselves to part of their lives being dedicated to political violence. And this is very important, right? We are not born terrorists and we're not terrorists forever, right? There's a part of our lives that is, um, some people's lives that is dedicated to political violence if they don't die uh, while committing it. Uh, But uh, so how can we apply narrative research, how can we apply my framework of analysis? So why did I create a framework? Because I wanted it to be applied to other cases and not only by um, academics, but you know, my kind of, what I would like to see it was also to be applied to practitioner uh, work. You know, could practitioners use this kind of framework to do prevention work or to do intervention work? And I believe it's possible Again, we tend to want one size fits all. It's not possible, again, right? So we actually, in this area, there needs to be different efforts where there's no profiles. I'm really sorry, but there's no profiles. And all of us have been saying this all along. So we need to take the human, each person kind of approach, right? We need to understand each organization, each context in, in which things are happening. Um, but uh, that's why I think this kind of framework where you have different moments of time, where you can trace different identity positions, where you can trace the emotions. There's quite a lot of people working on emotions and we're now having a paper also looking at, instead of the identity positions, the emotions people kind of talk about that they felt and they're feeling. Um, you can map this into the different moments of time. And you can map this before people have committed um, anything, right? If you are working with young people and now there's so many grassroots projects with young people, um, and obviously there's quite a lot of critique about that, you know, kind of criminalizing the pre-criminal space. I'm not talking about that. I'm actually just talking about, you know, all the counter-narrative work that is happening and in most cases not really successful because it's done on a void, right? It's not 
connected to what people are experiencing and to the things they want to discuss. You know, sometimes in this country, I feel that young people want to discuss foreign policy, but they feel they can't because they're Muslims or, you know, so they feel that if they kind of bring that up, it will work against them. So he's creating these safe spaces to, for practitioners to work with young people, for example, with the immigrants, with asylum seekers, you know, with a broad society, uh, even, you know, in colleges, with everyone. We've been doing focus groups in colleges with everyone who's in the class, just kind of raising these issues, uh, talking about, you know, can you talk about terrorism? Do you feel comfortable talking about terrorism? And most people say no. They actually say they never talk about it. You know, we had women in community centers saying, I turn, on, turn, turn off the news when I hear the terrorism word. I do not want to hear about it. I do not want to, you know, have conversations about this. And people telling, telling this, you know, crying. So we have an issue here. And uh, these kind of conversations, you know, this kind of very kind of human approach to it, um, in my opinion, can open doors, you know, about the life story, about what, what you're, you know, what's happening in your life, in your family, what kind of things are influencing you, and how can we use this for um, good, right? And Julia is an example of that. So nowadays, when you talk to her, what she says is exactly this. She says, now, I haven't, I, I haven't quit, right? I'm not a militant, any, a violent militant anymore, and I don't believe in that anymore because we were wrong. Uh, I don't regret what we've done, but we were misinformed. Uh, but nowadays, I keep doing it in a legal way. I keep my political activism, and I'm still trying to change the social injustices that I think still exist. But you know, she just channeled it. And that's what I've been telling people is that, you know, my research, you know, is true Portugal, it's a small case study, you know, small country, all that. But what it shows is there is this life story of someone who has been involved with violence, who came out with no intervention, no, no rehabilitation program, but through their life experience, through being able to engage in other meaningful political activities, um, they feel fulfilled. They don't feel they need to commit violence uh, anymore. But you only get this if you understand the story of the person who committed violence, right? So. How can we understand nowadays the return foreign fighters or the people who are stuck in, in, in refugee camps or wherever um, in Syria and the countries around if we don't talk to them? You know, how can we understand um, you know, what led them to go there and what makes them want to come back? And just by the media kind of uh, report on these things, you can already start seeing identity positions, right? You know, some of the women, like the last one is this uh, is Lisa Smith, the Irish woman wants to come back. You know, she brings up the children. She brings up, I came here, I didn't have any children. You know, I had these kind of ideas and now, but now I have children. Now my priorities changed, you know, so you start seeing the cracks 
in the eye as a militant, right? And, and again, you know, I think the family one is kind of the easy one to find, but there are others, you know, there are others, even Shemaima Begum, mm -hmm. you know, she talks about, um, I went there, you know, but when I start seeing what was actually happening there, I was shocked. And this never comes in the written reports. This is just when you hear the, you know, the recorded conversation. But you know, because we don't want, we don't want to humanize them. We don't want to include the identity positions that show that they're changing. We just want to include the bits that are sensational, you know, sensational, and you know, show how horrible people, terrorists, they are, right? So I think our own approach sometimes as public and sometimes as media is also, you know, kind of burying people's change. And um, yeah, I just go against all that kind of um, movement in the sense of like, for example, Shemaima Begum is she's not, you know, she doesn't regret and all that. Well, she's a highly traumatized um, young person, right? That did wrong, made wrong decisions, um, but she needs help. Right, and she's 19. I've interviewed people who are 80, and you know, when they were 19, they did commit political violent acts, and then they didn't anymore for you know very long period of time, and they're fully integrated citizens in society. Yeah, and those 80-year-olds that you were interviewing, they were living in a in a society which had would no longer discuss what they were what they had been involved in. There was what you refer to in the closing of one of your articles as there was on memory rather than false memory or forgot or, or, or a society forgetting. So when you go to Portugal and present this research, when you go and talk about this research now, what kind of reaction do you get? Surprise, <laughs> you know, like the younger generations are always very kind, you know, they're very surprised. So, you know, I try to encourage them because there's still a lot of research to be done, right, in the Portuguese context. So I really encourage them. Uh, when I talk at university to uh, students, you know, I encourage them to do more because one research project would be amazing, would be now to kind of study the, the sons and daughters of these people. This has never happened. Totally unstudied, right? Nobody has ever done this. Some of them are in politics. Some of them are in parliament, actually sitting in parliament. The you know daughters of uh, people who were former militants. Um, others, we have no idea. You know, they're just normal citizens. But what are they doing? You know, what are they doing with the kind of narratives, political narratives they inherited? For example, so I kind of encourage people um, to do more research on this. Um, then for the kind of, you know, the older generations who obviously remember this. So my thesis got a prize, uh, yeah, the, after, the year after it was uh, published. Uh, and this is like a really, um, well, it's a, presti a prestigious prize. And it was presented by kind of people from the political establishment. Yeah, you know, it's okay. This was an academic prize. So it was given by, it was, there was a, an academic jury. But I'm not sure how the kind of older generations in the political establishment, you know, receive it. They are, oh, no, it's great that you've done it. Um, but they're not really kind of, you know, excited or using it or bringing it up. Because, again, they're still part of that generation that wants to bury it, right? This is still the majority, John. So the majority is still... So 
these ideas of the battle over memory is, are seen as a very kind of leftist mm -hmm. um, ideas. Um, so, so yeah, you're, so for the kind of prize ceremony, I invited all my interviewees mm -hmm. um, and some of them came and they were really happy, but it's the ones that are keen for these stories to come out. We can't forget, I still, I use pseudonyms in my, in all research, not everyone wants them, but some of them really want them and they do not want to be out that they are involved with this research. Okay. So there's, there's still a lot of stigma uh, with it. So I had six of them of the 28 coming to the prize ceremony because obviously coming makes it clear that they were part of the research. Right. So, so there's a lot of still stigma, as I said, and lack of kind of political will, but because it's the kind of, you know, solved issue is, or is a known issue because there's no criminal, um, offenses being going on. It has all been prescribed, right? There's nothing in courts around that. So, you know, I think, yeah, people just kind of, you know, we, we keep the revisionism quite a lot, despite now some voices that are trying to counter it. Oh, it's really, really fascinating. I think I know uh, plenty of our listeners will have learned so much from, from today's chat. And just before we finish up, though, you've mentioned the role of critical terrorism studies mm. throughout the interview, and it's, it's clearly had a, had a significant influence on the way that you approach, um, that you approach your research. What role do you see critical terrorism studies playing? Not previously, but what role do you see it playing moving forward with, uh, within the analysis of political violence and terrorism? So um, I think there's, you know, there's some um, recent research that has been um, really interesting in the way they have um, challenged um, PVE, uh, interventions, for example, or how counterterrorism um, legislation has harmed um, communities, or or just what is the impact of um, counterterrorism and prevention of violent extremism uh, sort of measures in in the communities that they are aimed at. So I think that's an area where. Um, where quite a few critical terrorism scholars are working and uh, that uh, there, there's quite a lot of work uh, that can be done also because, you know, in different countries you have different types of, um, of city um, interventions and programs and legislations. So, so I think that's one of the fields that we can really contribute um, not only just to evaluate at the program level, but also uh, how are the programs um, influencing, having, having an impact, and this can be positive or a negative impact on, on program uh, users, for example, um, but also on the broader um, communities where, where you know, the people uh, come from. So I think that's one of the areas. Um, and, and now I think also um, we have this added layer of the, of the far right. It, it's always been here, but uh, as you know, um, far right violence is not always treated as terrorism or, you know, most of the times it's not trialed under ter terrorist leg legislations. And it seems that this is 
changing. So I think with the New Zealand um, attacks, the things are starting to change. Um, but um, but yeah, I think there's a lot of, a lot of concerns um, with this because uh, I think for me the question is. Um, do I want the counterterrorism legislation that until now has been mainly um, applied to kind of Al Qaeda inspired, ISIS inspired type of extremism to be applied to the to the far right? Um, uh, is that what I want? If um, you know, in 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 a lot of cases, I think that sort of legislation or the programs it kind of creates are might might be having a, a negative impact um, on people and on communities. Um, so we need more research on this. And I think critical terrorism studies and are really well positioned to do this analysis and to offer um, this type of, of critique. Uh, you know, what what is a good counterterrorism um, legislation um, sort of thing? And, you know, how are we applying it? How are we applying it to different um, types of um, of terrorism, so so here I think it's a, it's a really um, interesting um, area that needs to be uh, moved forward, really. And and yeah, and then there's also all these debates in you know nowadays at university, all the impacts of sort of agenda. We are all really pushed to work with the local authorities, national authorities, international authorities, you know, and to show how. How is our research having an impact? And and sometimes it's really hard to do you know critical research, um, and um, and show like a really quick, really direct um, impact. And also to be invited to the table, because I feel that you know very often um, critical terrorism scholars and critical scholars in general are not really welcome at the table. Maybe you know maybe. <laughs> I don't know. I think there's some fear from the other side. You know, what are they going to do? Are they just, you know, going to burn the place down? Um, which is obviously um, unfair and untrue. Um, but um, so, yeah, all these kind of debates, I think, are happening um, in conferences, uh, you know, in, in meetings and, you know, and how can we uh, bring the, the field forward? But yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting debate that will will continue on. And mm. anyone who wants to find out more about critical terrorism studies, its origins, I would really uh, advise you to listen into my interview with Richard Jackson yeah. from Series One to read the work that's published uh, within critical terrorism studies and to to come to your own uh, own opinions mm. about it um, mm. based on on that that analysis of the literature of the publications that are put out there. Uh, from all sides. Raquel, thank you so much for being a guest on today's episode of Talking Terror. It's really, I, I, I've i found your, your work fascinating and uh, I have to say that a special issue in studies in conflict and terrorism is excellent, mainly because I have, I have a ch- an article in there as well, so I have to promote that there. No, but really, it's it's all really interesting and it's it gives us uh, a real insight into the individuals that we're, we're, uh, we're talking about here and and into a new new case study with regards to Portugal as well. But as I said during the, the interview, even if the case of Portugal isn't something that you're necessarily interested in, there's so much rich information, rich methodological approaches, rich 
analytical approaches to draw from from the research here from Raquel and her colleagues. So I'd really encourage you all to to go and have a read of it and uh, and to 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 see where it can be applied elsewhere as well. So. As always, uh, thank you so much for listening. We'll be talking to you all again uh, very soon. If you do want that discount, that 35% discount on all publications from bloomsbury.com from the Middle East and politics section, be sure to use that discount code TALKINGIBT19. That's all one word, TALKINGIBT in capital letters and 1919, the number 19. And if you or anyone you... um, you know wants to do a master's in terrorism and security studies be sure to check out the master's we're offering here at royal holloway university of london i'm going to keep on mentioning it until you've all signed up for the masters basically so you're going to be hearing about it week in week out so definitely check it out we're going to be having guest speakers as well as the royal holloway uh, speakers you would have a chance to get involved in this very podcast as well so if you were interested, be sure to get in touch. You can follow me on Twitter at Morrison underscore JF, the podcast at, at, at terror underscore podcasts. And uh, if you want to drop me an email, drop me an email to john.morrison at rhul.ac.uk. But until next time, thank you so much and talk to you soon. Bye.